2: Everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Rabona Podcast. This week, we're talking Nations League, international friendlies, and also a new feature, Rabona Rewinds, where me, Michael, and Ryan will be looking back on our favourite moments in football history. So, Michael, Ryan, welcome again. Hey, hi. How are you guys doing? Good week. Very good. Solid. <laughs> Start, exactly. start of the Nations League. Yes, yes. What could be any better? How are you feeling about it, guys? How do you feel about it? What,
0: I have no so idea fun? what's going on. Like, what is it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's good. I
0: think it's good that, um, that teams, European teams, play other European teams of a similar level. I think that increases competitiveness. And you could see, I think, in some of the games that it, it seems to mean a bit more now. Um, so that's
1: a nice thing. Yeah, the atmospheres were much better, I thought. Yeah. I watched uh, Georgia. Who did Georgia play? Georgia Latvia. Okay. Georgia top of their group, by the way, two out of two. And the atmosphere was insane. Like properly, properly crazy. It was so loud. It was probably the loudest I've seen an international game for a while. Yeah. Whereas I I don't think Georgia fans would create that kind of atmosphere
0: for, say... If it was a friendly
1: against Latvia.
0: Yeah. Or against a a big
2: team where they knew they're going to lose. Yeah. The,
1: yeah, like you say, the games
2: mean more and I think it adds a little extra spice. Isn't yeah. it a bit like when you're just playing with your mates like seven aside in the park and someone goes, okay, like loser buys the beers, you know, for <laughs> yeah. example. And it's just given that little bit more edge. It does. It it? It yeah, does.
1: it's the international equivalent of like first to three. Yeah. You know, or next I, goal wins. I like that then, though. I think yeah. it's
2: worked well. I mean, I and what's interesting about this um, Nations League is that I find the international teams I've been watching have picked up almost they left off in the World Cup. Mm. So... France, you know, groggy start, but looked good eventually. I mean, last night against Holland. um, And they were kind of sparring a bit with Germany, whereas Germany have been oddly flat, I think, again. They Mm. haven't really rejuvenated themselves.
0: Yeah, they they were... I mean, I think the main thing for them against France was not to lose and to Mm. show that they... You know, they, they haven't lost some of their old spirit. Um, and I guess they succeeded in that, actually. Against France, they were good. Um, defensively, they were strong. I mean, Joachim Lef asked or demanded, rather, that they fight for every ball. Um, and they were doing that. Um, they didn't score, but neither did France. And I think to come out of that game without having lost is a a step forward for them but then a few days later Germany played Peru and they win but they're really not very good um I mean they ended up needing a goal from their left back Nico Schultz who was playing his first game um and he kind of got them out of jail a little bit Mm. so yeah Germany are a strange one at the moment um and
2: still very much a work in progress. You were saying Peru could have won that game as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, Farfan had a great chance. I mean, he did everything. He got through the defence and just needed to put it one side of the keeper, um, Ter Stegen, who, by the way, made quite a bad mistake for Peru's goal earlier early in the game. But Farfan missed and Germany
2: won. I mean, the thing about Peru is interesting. This, again, is a bit of a World Cup hangover for them because what held them back, as I recall, was poor finishing. They had everything else, but the finishing touch. and one that strikes me is that very rarely do you have very rarely do you have small nations who have outstanding strikers mm. who can take them through to the next level. That's why I think it was so incredible having Cameroon back in World Cup 90 with Roger Miller, mm. because it was very rare that we had a player, you know, a player like that at the spearhead. Absolutely. It makes like such it. a difference, doesn't yeah. it?
0: Um, yeah. We see that with a few international teams, actually, Obama Young um, yep. as well. And, yeah, I mean, if you can have that, def- you know, bedrock, defensive bedrock, um, and just have one world-class striker who can bang them in, you can be a very effective international team. That's why France
1: won the World Cup. Olivier Giroud yeah. doing all the hard work for the, <laughs> for the bedrock of
2: the rest of the team. Can I say shout-out to Giroud? Like, fantastic goal last night. Yeah, it, it was, was. amazing. It? Yeah. it was a beauty, yeah. yeah. Isn't that funny, classic Giroud, though? He, he missed... I mean, Mbappe scored the first, and arguably... Giroud should have got to the cross first but and got to the far post and Giroud scored a blinder and he, he does that he scores absolutely extraordinary like strikes
1: <laughs> I think we've mentioned it a few times on the show already but he's just he was a, he's a massively underrated finisher because he will tend to score the more difficult ones and miss the uh, <laughs> miss the what look like easier chances that so.
2: doesn't make him uh, underrated it makes it makes him highly misunderstood (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because there was a player that played for Brazil in the 82 World Cup Serginho the the nine the kind of Giroud or the Givash type position where you're slightly isolated from the action because you're the point man so a lot of this stuff happens behind you almost the kind of you're almost out on a limb Mm. Um, and you might argue actually to be charitable to Giroud that part of his struggles up front because you're so long out of the play then all of a sudden it catches up with you. And then you're not in the same groove as the other strikers. They, they've seen the game in front of them and you've got your back to goal or you're like, you're the point man. So very often those moves can come from, those misses can come, you can argue from, just being actually out of the game for long periods. Mm. He's almost like a, he's so isolated up front. He's almost like a goalkeeper sometimes in terms mm. of his isolation from the rest of his, and he's his been,
1: team. Yeah, he's been playing in good teams, you know, so who often have a lot of the ball and play against, you know, deep line defences. Right. And, we mentioned it was it last week or the week before about Lukaku kind of needing touches, yeah, and how getting it, that helps getting in the rhythm and I think the thing that's that drew's so good at is the link play that he brings, and I think you know that's why he got a bit of a pass for not scoring through the World Cup because he did so much work to bring other people into play, yeah that even without his goals that what he gives you is is a little bit overlooked actually, and that's what I probably
2: mean by underrated well, I think sure I'll be f- far harder to replace than people realize. Um, There was a great piece that I think uh Squawker did on six different, the Squawker website did on um, the six different permutations of France's front three. And it was funny because looking at the front threes they had, Giroud was the one player who I think was unique. You have Benzema who mm. could be the head of a front three, but Benzema for personal reasons is not the best. But I actually think that funnily enough that system, I would think Giroud is better at leading the line mm. in that specific context. Yeah, he needs runners. So I want to throw something in as well. Um, just in relation to France, because I often forget this, but I absolutely love Blaise Matuidi. <laughs> this is a guy that went from PSG to Juventus. Under a bit of a cloud, I think he didn't like the Neymar circus, and you know, was someone we saw as a kind of defensive midfielder, I suppose, primarily. Took a role, a self-sacrificial role. Um, played as a sort of left-sided player with a defensive capability. But now he's utterly rejuvenated. He looks like he's 22, 23 years old. Mm. You know, and he's 31, I think. Yeah,
0: he's such and a team
2: player. I mm. love I love seeing... You know, the, when you look at great teams, I always think like, you know, to use an American expression, who are the glue guys? And Matweedy is absolutely a glue guy. You can imagine mm-hmm. him yeah. like... He's the guy to remember, like, do a birthday card for the team or he'd be there, he'd turn up if you're like, you know, if you broke your leg, he'd be the first person in the hospital. He's that kind of guy, right? He's a glue guy, I think. Yeah, he brings the oranges at half Yeah,
1: exactly. exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of love for Blaise
2: McTweenie in uh, or in or on this podcast. Uh, great guy. In this room. I just think that's, you know, maybe I'm an old man and sentimental, but, you know, the more I look at teams and how they're built, it's not just the headline, the headline acts. Mm. It's who's providing the clue, and you know, Kante gets a lot of praise now, but I think people like Matuidi as well need a shout. Did you guys see England versus Spain? Oh no, I didn't. Only um, I didn't see the
0: game live. It, was, uh, it was it was a, a, a Tiago Alcantara masterclass. Oh, what he good was player. he was absolutely fantastic. There's no, a um, midfield
1: to do it against. I think
0: uh, <laughs> oh. the England midfield is uh... well. You, you raise a really really good point, and I think. That really is the thing stopping England from taking that big leap to being a a world beater. It
1: really is the only thing. Yeah, we covered in the World Cup podcast, didn't we? We said, I think, before the semi finals or after the semi finals, that lacking England lacking a truly world class yeah. central midfield like ball playing central midfielder absolutely Deep and line it, line and line it player. was
0: so it was so clear watching that game that you know spain have tiago they also have isco um and if you look around the other teams in europe france have pogba germany have kroos and Gundogan. um modric modric and rakitic i mean that's probably the best um around england Desperately, desperately lack that. And I'm sorry to say that I just don't see them doing any better than they did. I think they absolutely outdid themselves in in the World Cup, but I just don't think they can do any better
2: with their current midfield. And the problem is, I think it's a systemic thing because you look at someone like uh, Iyaramendi, who came through the same generation as Thiago, Mm -hmm. was a terrific player, didn't quite reach the heights as expected, but that is the kind of player that is produced by a coaching system. There is it's no coincidence that Spain have that depth in midfield, and somebody at St George's Park, I'm sure, is thinking the final step to England getting where we can get is match control. Yeah, you look at Phil Foden, and Phil Foden is a player that absolutely can do that, and it'll mm-hmm. be fascinating to see him at City. You know, I see actually. So this is the Manchester City youngster, City, Manchester City, yeah, it. young player. If you go, if you go on YouTube and you watch the highlights of the, I think the under twenty World Cup final. Where um and nineteen World Cup final, where England beat Spain five two in the final. I think Foden scores twice. He was brilliant and in that game. Yeah, that is. I mean, mm. if you're looking at a ball playing midfielder, the thing is though he's
0: plays wider, and I think he would have to be converted to a
2: central midfield. I think he's like Bruno oh. Silva. I think he can play your route.
1: I don't want to bang the Arsenal drum, but I I really think that someone like Ainsley Maitland Niles is going to have a long England future. I think he for me is looks like one of the most complete central midfielders that we've had at that age for a long long time he's very athletic very very tidy on the ball very confident with the ball as well considering he's been kind of around that arsenal first team for over a season two seasons now Mm. when he played last season a lot at left back uh, or left wing back when he was stepping in which isn't his position his position is center midfield he would often drop into central midfield positions and uh, demand the ball off people very good at like uh, recycling the ball keen eye for a pass and he's got a, a lot of bite about him as well the which thing I-,
0: I worry about though is that these I mean I've seen a bit of Maitland-Niles he looks very good Foden I've seen quite a bit he looks really really good as well but we're talking about your almost once in a generation quality of midfielder mm. and a player like Thiago doesn't come along very often No, and it's so frustrating
1: that England are so close but so far you know i wish we uh, had a visual element to the podcast then because the anguish on michael's face was, <laughs> was real the
0: pain is real i feel
1: it yeah this isn't just quality analysis guys this is from the heart michael's <laughs> michael's hurting for a technical
2: midfield <laughs> what i will say is that what i will say and what is really exciting for me is who these players are learning from i absolutely love the fact that mate and naz is being coached by emery you look at a uh, photo learning from guardiola but I just feel like the next three, four years will be pivotal because if these players like Foden, and Niles do well, that creates a pathway for other players like them. And also I think it affects the coaching dynamic further down. The kind of league pyramid
1: the mm. one thing i do worry about in terms of uh, from an england point of view though is what the plan is behind the scenes Career. at a coaching level yeah. because recently especially since the saint george's park construction and development and move it seems that their process has been very reactive mm. it's kind of whatever the more successful nation in world football is doing you know mm. there was a big kind of switch to like the german idea or model and I'm worried that by the time that those players who are receiving that approach come through, it's already too late. The game's moved. I, w- I really wonder if there is a plan looking forward in terms of developing their own method and their own kind of like, quote unquote, philosophies. Do you know what I mean? To bring these kind of young players through.
2: The FA could say though, they could say in their defense, they've won they won three world titles in a calendar year and no country's ever done that before. And those players are all young. You know, the generation, you could argue the generation we have now is the last generation that was well coached, but actually not as talented. And the next five years will be a truer reflection of the success of what the FA has laid in place, because that generation is not only very well coached, but exceptionally talented. That's a really good point. Actually. And w- what's exciting as well, and to credit to the players, is that they themselves are being enterprising because the FA can coach all they like, but it's the players who have to take the initiative of going abroad and playing for clubs abroad. I mean, Jadon Sancho going to Borussia Dortmund is just a wonderful... Yeah, Wonderful move. The bravery of that and the extent to which he's been rewarded by his desire to learn. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I find myself excited by... Yeah, I'd love to see more players follow Jaden Sancho's example because, I mean, I went
0: to Hertha Berlin versus Dortmund back in January when um, Sancho made his... Uh, I think that was his league debut. Mm. Um, for certainly his first league start. And um, he was he was kind of uh, I would say like a bag of tricks you know mm. like a bit uh, a bit raw a definitely definitely a raw talent um who needs to learn but you get for every Jaden Sancho there's another 10 of them in England who are not getting game time mm. and not learning you know the path to success is not just being a bag of tricks it's being able to play the game and understand it and you only get that from experience and I think Sancho has done, he's done such a good thing by going. He's still so young. I mean, he's, I think, similar age to Pulisic and look what he's achieved at at Dortmund. Um, And whenever I see Sancho play for Dortmund, I think something's going to happen. And that's a great feeling. Mm. Um, It's a
2: great feeling to have. He's an exciting player. And I think he's set such a nice example. You know, you see a lot of Brits, you know, a lot of us don't learn more than one language at school. So we're instinctively afraid of of going abroad and spreading our wings and that's what's the football is any any kind of Brit, any kind of British professional and someone like him goes, abor- goes abroad goes to a new city six months later people are like oh what's it like out there and he's mm. like actually you know what I made a completely new life and that inspires people yeah there's a great story I, I don't know the guy's name now I should um I should have checked it before the podcast but he's playing as a left back uh, at Borussia Mönchengladbach Mandela Egbo that's it uh, yeah. Mandela Egbo that's the guy yeah, yeah. 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 plays for all the kind of reserves in front of 20,000 people a week I think yeah and has gone up there, made a really terrific life. And I think other people are seeing that and then catching on.
0: Yeah, so. absolutely. And I think um, as more English players make the, that kind of move, and I think the Bundesliga is a good league for it because, it, you know, it's not as competitive as La Liga, for example, and you get more opportunities. So Reese Oxford is a, another young English player that's that's
1: gone to Gladbach as well. So... Um, the recently. perfect
2: club for youth talent. In, yeah, it really is in Germany. I would say.
1: It's yeah, been some really interesting moves though. There's like Jonathan Panzo to Monaco. You know, like m- moves like this that are really interesting. Nani maduke went to PSV, um, and you had um, Chris Willock went to Benfica B. Marcus McGrain left Arsenal last season and went to Barcelona.
2: Can I say this? It's really flattering when certain clubs come for you. I think I mentioned mm. this on the podcast before, but you know, when Thomas Samar was being pursued by Atletico Madrid you know that they have such a specific process. Mm. Like the way Monaco for Monaco to come for you, you know, yeah. having signed Lucas Ocampo before and James Rodriguez, they know exactly what they're looking for. Technical, you make um, very good decisions on the break and transition. Like there's a certain, there's a footballing intellect when a club like PSV comes for you with their heritage or mm. Benfica, who have got this incredible youth system. There must be a sort of sense of validation from that. And you don't get that playing for unnamed clubs in the premier league and the championship i mean there's
1: genuine european weight there in terms of Absolutely. history you know it's yeah. a club
2: like benfica and the history that's steeped in and and the only reason i want to mention this is the sort of football heritage side that we touched on there imagine going from a reserve side a championship club you know or a premier league club to benfica you're bumping into rui costa in the club canteen like you know that <laughs> level of <laughs> this is what i'm saying like to go from a place of obscurity where all of a sudden you're kind of hanging out with the great and the good and immersing yourself in a whole new culture must be really valuable. Really Sorry, the,
1: the only thing I took from that was like, I wonder what they serve in the Benfica canteen. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine?
0: So guys. UEFA um, Nations League. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to mention uh, Brazil. Not part of the UEFA Nations League, of course, but they played USA in New Jersey. 2-0 to Brazil. Hardly any fans, though. That's weird. 30,000, I think, in an 82,000... Yeah, to you'd stadium. expect sell out
2: there, wouldn't you? Brazil against the US?
0: Yeah, apparently the uh, fans were priced out. $80 was the cheapest ticket, um, which is far too much when <laughs> you've got a World Cup on the horizon and you're trying to encourage fans to uh, to to get into the game. It's just a friendly, right? Just a friendly, but you've got Neymar, Firminia. I mean, you've got the, some of the biggest players in the world right there. Um and you want to see a full house.
2: I think Brazil have lost a bit of cachet though. I think, you know, they are Brazil, they're brand of Brazil, but I wonder if they've become a little bit complacent. And I don't mean the team as a whole, you know, I look at Neymar for example, and there's that moment in that game, actually, the friendly where Yedlin turns to Neymar, having fouled him actually. And then the ref was like, you know, giving a free kick and legend says it two or three times, didn't you see the world cup? Didn't see how Neymar died for the World Cup. <laughs> really? And that's how, wow. deep, that's how deep the rot has gone. Oh. Neymar went from being kind of like the adorable surfer boy, you know, the surfer prince of world football, the adorable kid who basically got, you know that, that game against South Africa, the friendly where the kid was idolizing Neymar and the security tried to get him off the pitch and Neymar put him on his shoulders and mm. walked around and mm. everyone loved him. And I was like, that was sort of peak Neymar, mm. Champions League winner in his early 20s, playing with Messi and Suarez, all beautiful on the surface and now unfortunately like he's kind of lost his it's like when spider-man lost his suit at homecoming it's like that like it's the same thing <laughs> yeah i'm i mean it seems
0: um i mean it, it, it lost the love really there's right,
2: there's right. no love for him anymore um and it happened strangely when he moved to psg there's a game when he played against neem i think uh recently i was at neem um they beat them 4-2 i think Mbappe got sent off mm. and Neymar scores a goal and gets booed and does a sort of crying, face, crybaby face to the crowd and I was like it's quite sad that Neymar's become a pantomime villain actually Well
1: that was in front of a banner that said Neymar you're a crybaby Yeah but so like he went right in but, front but, of it But the
2: fact that he's kind of that wasn't a thing that Neymar was being called, but it was the minority before that would give Neymar that. And it was more, you know, there was more criticism of whether he was tough enough for the league, but there wasn't a sense that he was a petulant child. Well, remember how he came to prominence
0: as this kind of YouTube star, you know, like um, the typical, like 21st century social media era story, you know, people knew, fans knew about him before we saw him in europe we all knew about him when he was in brazil and some of the amazing things he was pulling off and there was a genuine sense of excitement about what this guy could could bring um and then he joined barcelona and basically the whole world was always watching you know from Mm. when he was a teenager to you know when he finally made that move well i remember there was a club world cup and he
1: played against barcelona um it seemed to be that when he came to barcelona though it was like he's here he's like he's finally arrived exactly. it's like something that was been on the cards for ages and yeah. that and that front three of suarez neymar and messi it, it was, was like you know you kind of have those like old movies where there'll be like three brothers and two of them are kind of older and a little bit more like you know kind of streetwise and there's the young one who's like yeah behave behave and that was kind of what Neymar was like but it was like there was a it seemed like there was a genuine I don't want to say innocence but it was this fun those three just clicked and they all genuinely seemed to love each other it was it was brilliant because we were all following Neymar's story yeah like up until that point
0: and he finally linked up with Suarez and Messi and formed MSN the most for- formidable uh, forward line we've seen in Europe for who knows how long and then for it all to be kind of almost thrown away, seems so needless. He wanted,
1: to, he wanted to do that solo album, man. And it was like he broke the band up. And it flopped. You know? And it flopped. And now he's playing 300 capacity clubs where he could have been sold, selling out arenas
2: with the band, you know? That is the perfect analogy. And I think what's funny about Neymar's, it's crazy talk of a decline, but a sideways move certainly. He's lost his aura. And It's a look. backward move. You look at PSG now. He went there to be the main man. He went to be the main man, and now Mbappe's the main man at PSG. Mm. Mbappe is absolutely the main man Neymar's
0: got what he deserved, if you ask me.
2: Yeah, I think he did. I think, you know, staying at Barcelona was absolutely the right thing from a football perspective, Mm. and he would have got all the glory he would have wanted, he would have got all the money, he would have made a better crossover to the US because Barcelona is a much bigger product Mm. if we're being purely marketing about it. And I just wonder if there are people in the Neymar's marketing team who go... I think we got this one wrong.
1: Also, I wonder what, whether there was a level of impatience there about being the guy. Suarez isn't going to be at Barcelona for a hell of a lot longer. Could easily see Messi dropping deeper and deeper and playing mm. until he's a little bit older, you know. But I wonder whether there was just a level of impatience there about being the the guy now, as opposed to, you know, waiting four or five years and then eventually being the guy at Barcelona. And that's
2: no time to wait at all. Mm. when you're playing with the greatest who ever did
1: it. It yeah, just seems it's, it's, it's totally impatient. I mean, I,
2: I, I, when he moved to
1: Barcelona, I admittedly didn't. I didn't think he would retire there. Mm. But I was surprised the move came as quick as possible, as quick as it did. You know,
2: what's interesting is there's now talk of Neymar going to Real Madrid at some point, mm. which would just be the perfect circus. <laughs> and I think those clubs are just ideal. The, 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 that club, I can't think of a better marriage of club and player than Real Madrid and Neymar. Yeah, I just think if there's any place that. You know, Real Madrid is a circus that there's always room for an extra He will up he, he will end up there and there's
0: uh, work going on behind the scenes to make that happen. I think that move is gonna happen in the foreseeable
1: future. Yeah. Should we take a quick break and then get into the rewinds?
2: Yeah, why not? Let's go for it.
1: Right, we're back from a break with a new feature. It's so yes. our first feature, I think. It's going to be a semi-regular thing that we'll do in some quietish weeks called Rabona Rewinds. Rewinds or Rewind? Rewinds.
2: Uh, Rewinds is quite nice. No, Rewinds, Rewinds with a Z.
1: <laughs> <laughs> with an S. With an S. Keep it classy. Uh, so basically, the gist of this is that we each pick something that we love about football from the past. It could be a team. It could be a player. It could be a a moment a moment uh, a rivalry a boot a kit anything you like a stadium yeah and then we basically just chat about it for a little bit <laughs> Sounds perfect. so welcome to the first edition of Rabona Rewind we should have some theme music or something yeah, like we that, should. Maybe. yeah, yeah we're, we'll
2: find uh, some Musa, you're up who have you picked for the inaugural I have chosen the Brazilian Ronaldo the phenomenon oh wow we have to take it there. And that is the end of Rabona Rewind. <laughs> Everyone just sinks into a dreamlike state. Oh, the phenomenon. Look, the, the reason I mention him is because I don't think we will ever again see all the qualities of an elite centre forward united in one human being. You know, the power of Batistuta, the finishing of Romario, ah, the speed of Claudio Lopez, Ooh. the presence of George Weah. Mm. You know, I just, this guy was just and the, and the touch of Redondo. Oh, the touch of <laughs> Fernando Redondo. Literally. I'm going
1: to have to. Uh, We're going to have to open a window. It's uh, getting steamy in <laughs> I'm sorry. here with all this talk.
2: It's a family podcast. We have I'm to put this one as explicit. this book. <laughs> <laughs> I just adore Ronaldo. Like, there are very few players in football history who have created danger within fifty yards from goal. And the second Ronaldo crossed the halfway line. Nobody was safe. What was your favourite Ronaldo goal? This is the thing, it changes. It changes every sort of few months and I actually find myself rewatching games of his. So for a long time it was, I think, a goal against Valencia where two men basically tried to block him off and he just burst between them. Hmm. There's the famous goal against Compostela, uh, the 6-1 uh, victory when he goes past, I think, five or six men.
1: That's my favourite Ronaldo goal of all time. Really? Yeah.
2: Oh, uh, because it's 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 peak. It's everything. It's strength, it's, it's speed, the
1: combination. It's Touch. raw Ronaldo, kind of early on the scene Ronaldo. But it's so. This is for Barcelona. Yeah, yes. where he what holds off a couple he, of defenders. First, he gets the ball On the halfway line. First guy tries to pull his shirt off, yeah, and yeah. he holds him off. There's two around him. He does that little foot on top of the ball, stops, yeah. then goes past him. Yeah. Um, all the way in the edge of the box another drag back at the last minute and then puts in the left bottom left corner but it's Bobby Robson's reaction yeah. when he comes off the bench and turns around and puts his hands on his head yeah like just astonished by what he's just it's saying it's the
2: combination I think of
1: the goal the player the moment and Bobby being there well
2: th- it was funny because that season you mentioned at Barcelona I'm glad you mentioned that because I got given a VHS tape back in the day <laughs> um, I got given a VHS tape and it was that season mm. I think it's called 47 goals that season Wow. Uh, And I think he was world player of the year the year after that. And I think he was, yes, world player of the year two years in a row by the age of 21, Mm. which is obviously extraordinary. The youngest person to have been, to have gained an accolade twice. And I just remember thinking there is no limit to his potential. There's no limit to how good he'll become. Mm. And he was somebody who enjoyed one-on-ones. I've never seen a striker so ruthless so consistently ruthless there was a actually there's an amazing game they play a friendly brazil player friendly against argentina either qualifier, or copa america i'm not sure but it was it was a serious match it wasn't just a friendly and ronaldo earns three penalties and scores three penalties <laughs> and i've never seen that before you can find it somewhere on, on, on mm. youtube it's unbelievable
1: i got up his uh his goal record 438 games 291 goals 41 assists a goal every 118 minutes.
2: Unbelievable Mm.
1: for me, he was the first genuine superstar, like global football superstar I can remember of my lifetime. It seemed to be the first one who was just like you know, the nickname suggests an absolute phenomenon. He
0: he pretty much overlapped a little bit with uh, Maradona, didn't he?
1: Yeah, but I think that Maradona was from a very different era as well. Well, he was from a very different era, and I think that Ronaldo for me really seem to have that element of the modern day football superstar that we see now, like, you know, Neymar, Ronaldo, uh, Cristiano and stuff, but it was still that almost like prototype of the real, truly global... The
2: consistency as well. That's the thing, because until... We have to look at the era that he was playing in against some of the greatest defenders of all time. Mm, Liliane Turam, peak Alessandro Nesta, and he would humiliate them. Well, that's that's
0: why one of my favourite Ronaldo goals, and there's so many to choose from, is um at the moment anyway the um uh, the goal he scored in the final of the uefa cup mm. i can't remember which inter year. Was it, 98? it was y- yeah Could well have i think it was his
2: first year at inter so he'd left barca he'd gone to Inter. And i think it was his first year that
0: sounds right 1999, and, I'm not sure. yeah and it was an oh he just sold the goalkeeper the the, the most extravagant dummy Marchegiani wasn't. It, I think yeah, he actually sits sit.
2: down. The goalkeeper's actually he, he sits, sits down. him down. He sits <laughs> down. Oh, so, so awful.
0: <laughs> and he just it was it
2: was a step over, but it was also a shimmy, and it was just ah, uh, it was it was the end of a masterclass. Sorry to, I started to jump in. And just I remember I'm remembering the footage in my head. Yeah, and that was the end of a game where he basically humiliated Alessandra Esther. Yeah,
0: who by the way was one of the. G-
2: biggest rising stars in Italy at that time there's a great story about that game so Nesta said afterwards it was the worst experience of his football career and he rewatched the performance several times really? to work out what he did wrong and then he said actually I just I forgave <laughs> myself because actually he was unstoppable
1: I forgot how good that Lazio side was yeah Nesta Negro Favelli uh, Diego Fuse was the Fuse, was yeah. the captain Jugovic Nedved Casaragi okay. Mancini
0: oh my goodness no signore not, not then. Signori probably had gone by then. Oh, that era of Italian they football was unbelievable. Them. It was sadly that was kind of the back end of it, really, back end of the uh, the great times.
2: Oh, well, can I say my favourite Ronaldo goal? I've got it now. Another one. This is the one. This is actually my favourite. This is my this, new favourite. It, it, it changes every two minutes. <laughs> Into play against Spartak Moscow in the Champions League, I think it was, and they're playing in the pitch is basically a mix of mud salt snow and ice and ronaldo gets the ball 35 yards from goal accelerates to full speed within a couple of yards plays a one-two with zamorano goes round the keeper and cracks it in the corner Uh and it must be like i mean it's it must be almost sub-zero it must be like very very cold. and you know this whole thing about brazilians can't play in cold conditions whatever (laughs) and he shattered every single footballing stereotype in the Mm. space of like 15 seconds true he was amazing what i love about him is he's bigger than football on the pitch he's football culture if you look at the way that younger players look up to him there's a great moment on Instagram I think it was when Van Persie and Pires and some Arsenal players had him round for like dinner and Arteta was there and he's at the middle of the table and they're like kids they're like kids at Christmas like you actually got to meet Santa hey hey like you know they found Santa eating the cookies and they joined him and they're sitting around him they're just looking at him in awe and you're like you know they call him the phenomenon because what he did, and this is where, you know, you can put in the same category, there are things that astonish even fellow professionals who are only a couple of years younger. That's why I think he's, you know, over time when we assess his legacy fifty years down the road, when everyone's done, they'll be like, No, he was He's, he's right top. up there. Yeah, he's like, right um, up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. The greatest number nine the world has ever seen, and I think ever will see. Don't at him. Don't at him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Michael, I've decided to pick out one of the um, the greatest rivalries that I can remember, but it's not between two teams. Ooh. It's between two players. Ooh. Roy it? Keane versus Patrick Vieira. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> proud of that. <laughs> Punctuated by uh, my childhood. I seem to, uh, you know... I mean, Arsenal and United at that time, of course, were the two dominant forces of English football. But you always knew there was going to be fireworks when those two came head to head. And they hated each other.
1: It was great. I think that's my football, part of my favourite, one of my favourite moments in eras of football ever. I think that era of 98 to 2004, Arsenal, Manchester United. Every game seems like the biggest game of the year. I mean, I'm sure you guys remember when... um viera was
0: picking a fight with gary neville in the tunnel oh, in the yes
2: that game of 4-2 and, United uh, beat, um, Arsenal yeah
0: and uh and roy keane told him in no uncertain terms let's say <laughs> to back off and those two had the most ferocious rivalry like just tackles flying in i
2: just loved it absolutely loved it Do you know what's funny about it just that it's how they were like neither of them are english but they completely embodied English football. Absolutely. Which is wild, if you think about it. Like, totally. Yeah, they were two of the early adopters of the, uh,
1: <laughs> well, all kinds of uh, skullduggery on the pitch. Did you find that you, uh, people you knew had a favourite and it was like their, f- their flag was in the sand and they would like <laughs> fight their corner? Yeah, it was yeah. strange, wasn't it? Yeah, it really, really was. Yeah. It's the same. I actually found it similar to the early debate between Van Nistelrooy and Henri.
0: I, I was in the Roy Keane camp though, just uh I don't know. Well I mean as a Spurs fan I can't I can't support Vieira <laughs> under any circumstances. But um yeah, I, there was something about um about Keane that I just I, I just like I mean they were both great players and they were both so combative and that was uh why they were so good. But Keane just had something about him, you just I think even Ferguson was scared of him. <laughs>
2: I think they were the only players who were indispensable to those teams' success. Mm. If Henri had never become Henri, Arsenal would have found the goals somewhere else. Not as many, but they would have found the goals. They would have found them through Reyes or someone. They would have found the goals. Mm. You know, if Scholes hadn't become that incredible deep-lying player, United would have found a way. They would have found a way. Keane and Vieira were indispensable. Without those players those eras don't happen they like were literally that, the heart yeah.
1: of the team they were you know absolutely. positionally and kind of you know both being captains as well It was it was it's a bit of a cliche to say
2: but they they ran games these players embodied their teams if you look at them, even culturally you know united having this very strong irish support working class support and keen was the kind of avatar of that yeah and you look at arsenal they have this incredible cosmopolitan history you know they've always got a, tr- uh, a proud tradition of black players but like you know North London's a very black area, you know, a lot of black people there. And you could look at Vieira and see North London and him, mm. you know, because in North London, it's so integrated. You've got, you know, loads of white people and black people just mingle freely. So there was no challenge at all in seeing him as embodying. They both embodied the best of their local areas, which is something that's quite rare, mm. I think, at this point in football.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that um, both went into management or have gone into management and Keane not, very successful um patrick vieira is just starting off um so he can't really be judged but um i would have thought both of them would
2: make great coaches like just immediately well keane has been a great number two for ireland actually gotta give him credit for that and he was very good at sunderland ipswich not so great but there are elements of you know Keane maybe not a great manager but i think he's a great coach actually i think people respect him as well absolutely massively because they fear him yeah (laughs) i think he's just a great number two actually yeah you know that really worked what he did with ireland the o'neill keen partnership is hilarious there's a great moment where you know ireland they qualified uh some tournament and at the end martin o'neill is kind of like giving keen a hug or and you can just, it's, it's an amazing moment because O'Neill knows it's uncomfortable for Keane. I mean, the yeah. dynamics of that relationship are absolutely fascinating. They strike
1: me as a bit of a, you know, like a, an old cop duo, yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like Keane's the angry genius. Yeah, of and, course, uh, it's O'Neal's true the, the guy that's like, lets all the clues just like completely slip past him, whereas Keane's like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, for me that, that summed up a
0: whole kind of a decade of the best of the Premier League. Um, and yeah, you you look at how the game has evolved and how, you know, tackles are not really given the same um it's not seen as, as integral to the game anymore. And it's sad because I'd like to see another Keenan Vieira type rivalry emerge. But um yeah, I, I don't think we're gonna see anything like that.
2: I will just say that that's again it's cyclical because don't forget we had you know, that sort of tough tackling era, Catanaccio, Hélenio Herrera, you know, 60s, that followed the Madrid period of free football, you know, free-flowing, free-loving football. And so these things go in cycles. I don't yeah, but the
0: game is uh, moving towards less and less contact.
2: I don't know, because we always say this. We always say stuff is moving away from something that it comes back to it like we said that barcelona was the end of history you know 4 3 was the way forward and then they get destroyed 7-0 by Bayern in the semis playing this very hard physical brutal you know counterattacking style but
0: that's for me always th- th- that physical side of the game is always was always there
2: mm.
0: until until relatively recently i don't see it dipping in and out mm. i see it as just a a gradual decline.
2: Maybe there is a halfway house between, you know, the high athleticism we're seeing and the kind of a more of a physical approach. The clubs that are the best are the ones that have that kind of edge to them. And even you know make the Niles, you know, as a player that has got the ability to kind of like assert himself physically. And oxley Chamberlain as well, that to me is mm. the kind of the modern midfielder. Somebody who is physically robust or a Naby Keita for example, he's a guy who is mm. a great example of that, I think that trend. Yeah.
1: Yeah, used in the right way it can still be effective. Yeah. I think it's just physicality in a different way though, now, you know, I mean, back that keen Vieira rivalry era was seemed to be like a real sweet spot for where the game was moving in a very, a much more technical direction. It was speeding up in the Premier League. And then, um, but those two guys still had it all, you know, mm. like they could kick the whatever out of each other and right. they were tough, tough, tough guys. It was a really, really sweet kind of like almost like i don't want to use the word perfect but it was almost perfect it was like a perfect combination of style and aggression and physicality and you know a genuine rivalry between people who absolutely it, hated it, it each was other. the premier League's sweet spot yeah i think
2: yeah. yeah it was i think it was perfect i mean i there's one poem that i always talk about from arsenal and you can find it online um arsenal beat west ham 4-0 and i think it was 4-0 at half time Mm. and Overmars was speed skating. and I'm, mm. uh, Sir Alex Ferguson must have looked at this and been like, I'm, I'm in trouble here. We've yeah. got a challenge here. Because that Arsenal team, I mean, I've watched that game and been thinking, this is science fiction. Like, this is not... this. I've never seen football played that speed and that precision until Arsenal did it like that in that game against West Ham. It's I think remember.
1: that's why the rivalry escalated so quickly and got so personal because Sir Alex had... Um, he kind of had the run of the Premier League, really. And there was a guy who a lot of people didn't know about coming in. And everyone who's close to Ferguson says, you know, he only gets that nasty about people that he really fears. Right. And you could see that when Arsenal went into the period when they moved to the new stadium and they weren't competing for the title anymore. Ferguson adored Wenger. And he right. adores him now. And they adore each other. Yeah. And I think that underneath that real bitterness and nastiness between them, not that this is about Wenger and Ferguson, it's about Keane and Vieira, but obviously an extension of that, there was more of a, this guy's good, I have to beat this guy. Mm. He's so good, I have to beat him.
0: That's what made Ferguson the best coach ever, that he was able to absorb the challenge of Wenger first and see what he was doing and eventually find a way to beat it. And if it wasn't Wenger... It was Mourinho and, you know, various coaches that tried
2: but couldn't. There's a point to make here about how I think Keane and Vieira were the perfect embodiment of their managers on the pitch. And at clubs that you don't have that, the team doesn't work. So if you look at Diego Simeone at Letico, you had Gabi. Gabi was Simeone. Gabi had been through all this difficult time, had, had struggled to assert himself. But you know he was the soul of the of the club on the pitch, and I think the reason why Keane and Vieira are so incredible is Keane was perfectly aligned with the city of Manchester and was perfectly aligned with Fergus in terms of desire to win. Vieira had that same you know being had the urbane side, but had a tough side, and you know, Fener had a Wenger had a dark side as well. So I, I think that if we look at clubs that can be successful, those things need to be aligned. The manager needs to be aligned with the with the, with the, with the captain, and the captain with the city.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What what a rivalry. Yeah. It was great. And perhaps rabbit. the like we'll, like we'll never see
1: of again. <laughs> um, right, my t- turn. So, yeah, what have you got for us, Ryan? Well, you know, after those two heavyweights, I <laughs> could only chuck in another heavyweight, which is the Ajax 1995 Champions League winning oh, team. A team.
2: Oh, strong.
1: What a team. Strong. Musa looks like he needs to have a little nigh down after hearing those words it's in that
0: order. It's emotional, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, who I, I I remember a few of the names of course that golden generation that came through together but Yeah. What, I mean, what
1: was it what was the 11? Well, to give it I'm going to give it I'm going to introduce it and give it a little bit of context. Yeah. So, basically, Ajax hadn't won a Champions League or a Euro- European Cup since that. When was it? They, they won, won, won the 3 straight, in a row. Yeah. AC Milan were trying to break Real Madrid's record and be uh, the side that had won the most European Cups. There was a lot riding on this. Yeah. AC Milan's lineup was Sebastiano Rossi, Panucci, Maldini, Albertini, Costa-Curta, Barese, Donadoni, Desai, Mazzaro, Boban and Marco Simeone. There was no the weak link in that team.
2: Oh my God. And they were the defending champions, weren't they? Uh-huh. Were they
1: coached by Capello? They were. Yeah. On the bench... They also had Stefano Ariano and Lentini. Lentini, who, was he
0: still player. the most expensive player of mm. all time at that point? I'm not sure. Sorry. I think he moved in 93. I don't know if he still was the most expensive in
1: 95. I mean, Milan were, were overwhelming favourites, right, I think, for that game.
2: Well, it was difficult because it's a tough one because they were pretty stacked, obviously. Yeah. Um, they'd won the year before they destroyed Barca. And that was a surprise, that win. They'd ground it out. But I think you're right. By '95, they were not expected to take it, even though Ajax had been brilliant.
1: Mm. And then the Ajax lineup: Edwin van der Sar, Michael Reisiger, Danny Blind, Frank Reichard, Frank de Boer, Clarence Sadoff, Fernedi George, Edgar Davids, Ronald de Boer, Yari Littman, and Mark Overmars. With <laughs> this bench: Winston Bogard, Kanu, goodness me, Patrick Clivert, and Peter van Vossen. Coached by Louis van Gaal.
0: Yeah, it was just so many of those players you've just read out. You know, Clarence Sadar, for example, went on to win the Champions League with three different clubs. Still, the only player to have achieved that. But this was
1: really the uh, the starting point for many, many careers. I can remember watching the final, and um, I can remember almost everyone rooting for Ajax. Um, I'm where I might have been. I might, this might be a bit revisionist, but there seemed to be real joy when they won. mm -hmm. They were a really, they were a really young team. Um, they played amazing football. I I remember talking to my dad about this because he, you know, he remembers peak Ajax, and -hmm. I think that a lot of that generation were so pleased that Ajax were kind of there again. And, you know, obviously they've not won once since and a very different club now but and also at that time AC Milan were the ambassadors you
0: know of of European football as you just said they came off the back of that massive 4-0 win the previous year but the football wasn't that entertaining really Um, as we've come to expect from Fabio Capello it was (laughs) effective very effective but defensively minded Mm. and um, Ajax were a breath of fresh air they were you know a young team cosmopolitan team
1: made up of uh, various different um, nationalities as well well actually i mean you say that but I mean, this was still back in an era when they both teams only had two foreigners starting the game. Oh, really? The only two foreigners, Finidi George was Nigerian. I yeah, was, and Yari Lippmann was, <laughs> <laughs> Yari Lippmann was and still is Finnish. Yeah. Um, so those were the only two non-Dutch players that started for Ajax, and yeah. Desai and Boban were the only two non-Italians that started. But there was that. a sense of excitement about Ajax that they, yeah. we didn't have for
0: for Milan. And th- the one thing that I think of when I think of that. Ajax's run to the final was Finiti George's winning goal in the uh, the semi-final. Well, it wasn't really a winning goal. I think they battered Bayern in the end. Um, what, what it was, was a clinching yeah. But it was an absolutely stunning um, goal. I mean, Overmard cut back from the left, um, uh, rolled the ball across, and Lippmann did a, a great dummy, which just sold half of the defense and for george just didn't break stride and just outside of the foot just or kind of cut across the ball and it just swerved into the top corner it was a fantastic goal
1: i want to uh touch on just like i mean that team broke up pretty shortly after that and Mm. they all went on to do amazing Mm. they all went on to be pretty good footballers a lot of that team wow nearly all of them well yeah i was Kind of been a little bit sarcastic, but okay. one move I want to talk, because I know that this is something that you and me have spoken about a lot, Musa, is Seydorf. Yes. Seydorf made a really interesting move after this because he had offers from ACM, everyone. everyone, right? Yeah. And uh, he just won the Champions League and he moved to Sampdoria, which was, we've spoke about this, you think it's like one of the most power moves of...
2: <laughs> I think it was absolutely brilliant. Like it was, Seydorf went to Sampdoria because he wanted to play. He was like... You know, I've won a Champions League, but he humbled himself. And he was like, if I go to Barca or AC, like the others have done, I think roughly half went to Barca, half went to AC, Clive went to Milan, had a miserable time. Sam, um, you know, um, Sadov went to Sampdoria and played, I think, 30-odd games. And then there's a great story at the end of that season, and the last game of the season, Sampdoria played Milan, and Christian Karimba and Sadov bumped into Capello in the tunnel afterwards. And he was like, Capello was like, oh, by the way, I've got the Madrid job. Do you want to come with me to Spain? And they're like, yeah. Like it was basically just done there and then. They agreed to it in the tunnel. And mm. Sadov moves there to Madrid and, of course, wins the Champions League a year later. Wins a league title that year, then wins Champions League a year later. Mm.
1: Yeah, just a really interesting move. One year really in San And then back to Real Madrid. Mm. But yeah, that was uh, good times. Good times. I-, I love
2: that you mentioned that because that team if you look at the football intelligence, it's like a Cambridge University, like mm. those team, you look at that forward line, all of those players, Ronald De Burr, and Overmars, they could begin and end counterattacks. It is very rare you get a forward line where everyone is a playmaker, mm. you know, a primary playmaker where you could run, you could say to Ronald De Burr, run the attack, Patrick cliver run the attack, set up the counterattack. That is almost unheard of in world football. Like, at any level. And all those players, you know, like someone like Seydorf who adapted to three completely different tactical systems in his career, you know, played in a 3-4-3, three, 4-3-3, three, th- three, three, played in a 3-5-2, could just do any kind of configuration. Can I, can I also throw something as well in? Like there's a certain type of player in world football who they kind of loosen the screws before the door falls off. <laughs> and at the Champions League final, that's what Caru did. Like <laughs> obviously Kluivert scored, but there's a great quote from Caru where he says, I came on against um, Milan. I think he came on as a late sub. And he was just like, you know, at first I was a bit nervous, but then I went up against Barisi and I became a man. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, loosening the screws, kind of creating gaps. If you see the way the goal was scored, you know, the surging run, I think, from Rycard and plays into the feet of Cliver, And it's this kind of thing where you're like, Kanu just like popping up little sprite kind of like going okay look here's a pressure point let me create space here create space there it's
1: worth it's worth noting as well that he was 18 in that final unbelievable
2: i mean what a player
1: yeah i mean that's just a really yeah i've got very fond memories of that side and one you know to kind of wrap that up i one thing that really saddens me in a way that both neither of these teams are still at the moment european powerhouses right you know um i would love to still see Ajax and yeah. AC Milan consistently yeah. competing for the Champions League, um, it's a real shame. Not to end this on a sad note, but I really, you know, I the, those when you say I, AC Milan and Ajax to a whole new generation of young football fans, they may not have the the same weight that they did for us lot growing up. Yeah, absolutely. which you know, kind of don't, don't want to be like get off my get off my lawn. No, but, but think, you know, it is uh, it's
2: something I really miss. You know, I think though. If we can be, you know, it's nothing wrong with ending on a bittersweet note, but also, you know, all these great clubs have had periods of remission. Bayern Munich had their wilderness years, you know, um, so there's no reason why Ajax can't come again. With the right coaching set up and the right infusion of talent five, six years from now, there's no reason why they can't return. Yeah, to I mean, even spots.
0: Real Madrid hadn't won a, a Champions League since 2002 before they went on their
2: yeah.
0: their run of dominance. So.
2: And before that, before that win in 98, they hadn't won in 30 something years. Mm. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure as ever um, to talk to you. Likewise. I hope you've enjoyed Rabona Rewinds, our listeners. Thank you so much again for joining us. You can find us on social media, same handle across all platforms, at RobonaMag. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.